Thank you, Carrie. Well, good morning. You guys made it. You endured the cold weather. Uh, blessed are those who endure the coldness for righteousness' sake. So all the ones that aren't here, we're praying for them. No, it's great to be with you. I truly am glad that you're here in all seriousness. I'm grateful that we're able to go back in our study to the book of Exodus, to Exodus chapter 12. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn there, Exodus chapter 12. The title of the message is God's Institution and Commemoration of Passover. So as we come to the last plague, the tenth and final plague, I thought it would be helpful to set in place the priority, or even better said, the superiority of the tenth and final plague in comparison to the others. Uh, From a Hebrew narrative perspective, I want to do this. And it's quite clear that the tenth plague is the climax or the finale of the the plagues. Of course, it's been building to this, uh, but but I want you to see this um, just in terms of a Hebrew narrative perspective. If you were to go through and look through the plague episode and you were to count all of the verses per plague, here are the statistics that you would come up with. You can, of course, see in the point of us mentioning this and looking at this as we start is that when you get to the 10th plague, there is extreme dedication given to working through the death of the firstborn, or we often refer to it as Passover. Now, of course, you can look through the 10 plagues and the verses that are attributed to each plague, and this doesn't mean that plague number three of gnats, only four verses, is the least important, (laughs) right? That's not the point. But you can see as a general pattern here that's been set that we go all the way to 77 total verses that are dedicated to the 10th and final plague. That should trigger something in our mind, and that should be that this is by far the most important plague of the 10. Well, as we've studied Exodus together and we've looked through the plague episode or the plague narrative, Moses, the author, has rhythmically conveyed the story to us. Now, he has delivered it to us uh, in a certain pattern, in a certain cadence. And you know this, you've been here and we've looked at nine previous plagues. All of these plagues begin with a private or secret conversation between God and Moses. And then Moses will leave that conversation and he will go to Pharaoh and he will communicate exactly what God has told him to say. Of course, after this happens, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. God brings the plague that he said he would bring. Pharaoh tends to sort of act like a baby and ask Moses and Aaron to, hey, go to God, request that you end this plague. And so they do, and then God will end the plague. That's been the general flow and the general pattern as we've worked through the nine plagues. Well, last week, as John introduced us to the 10th and final plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, that cadence continues to a certain degree. In fact, Chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, begins with a private conversation with Moses where God tells Moses what is about to transpire in the plague. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh to relay what God had said. So, as we come to Exodus 12, in our minds, we have been trained through Moses taking us through the story that we should expect the unfolding of the plague. It actually happens. But that isn't where the narrative goes in Exodus chapter 12. So it's interesting here, and I'm going to pull up another chart for you, and I've got this on your handout. Rather than continuing with the actual plague itself, the 10th plague, there's a disruption in the narrative and the chronology stops, and we get sort of all of this extra information. That's what we're going to grapple with today. But in chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, we have 28 verses that are dedicated to the Passover ritual. So there's no advancement in the story in our study this week. 
So verses 1 through 20 is a speech from God to Moses. He lays out the institution and commemoration of Passover. That's what we're studying today. The next conversation in verses 21 through 28 is Moses' speech to the elders of Israel. And then after that, we get the plague itself. Only two verses in chapter 12, verses 29 through 30 are dedicated to the plague itself. Then after that, in chapter 12, the text continues, and I think I've got a typo there on on your sheet, but the text continues from 31 to 42, describing the aftermath of the plague, describing the aftermath of the plague. And then when you get to the end of chapter 12, 43 through 51, you see eight verses dedicated to Passover regulations. And then finally, to sort of cap off our discussion about Passover, you get to chapter 13, verses 1 through 16, and you've got 16 verses that are dedicated to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the death of the firstborn. Okay, so all of these verses, chapter 12 and most of chapter 13, are dedicated to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, Passover, unleavened bread. Again, so much content dedicated to this should tell us that Passover, the 10th plague, is the priority in the plague narrative. And we'll see several reasons why this is true. So with that sort of framework in mind of where we are going the next couple times we'll study together, uh, let's also look at Hebrew narrative and the additional material. Hebrew narrative and the additional material. And why do I want to do this? Because I, I want to help us all understand how Hebrew narrative continues to work. So as we continue studying Exodus, as you do your Bible reading plans that most people start January 1 working through Genesis, You can look for sort of these clues to help you discover why certain passages are where they are. Um, And we see that here in the 10 plagues. First off, a strong intrusion or forcible entry of material into the narrative suggests heightened importance, right? I mean, Moses isn't just hanging out on Mount Sinai and all of a sudden wants to say, well, we're going to talk about the institution of Passover. No, he inserts this material to heighten or increase the importance of this particular passage. Secondly, the abrupt transition of material shouldn't deter the reader, but draw him in. So I know I've been guilty of this, and even in past Old Testament narratives, and when you get to certain portions of the narrative, it just doesn't seem like it is that important, right? Like you get to a Genesis 5 genealogy that we studied a couple years back. You get to the genealogy in Exodus chapter 6, it doesn't seem like it's that important. We get to Exodus chapter 12, and it doesn't seem like this institution is that critical. So instead of taking us away from these passages, this insertion of material is actually here to draw us in. And I hope it does that for you this morning. Thirdly, the placement of the Passover material directly connects it to the nation of Israel's most pivotal point in history. So as we walk through the institution of Passover, having the material placed here helps it be extremely tangible and accessible to the nation of Israel. So everything that they will come to know about Passover is inserted in the text before Passover actually happens. So it's grounding them in history. Number four, This new revelation, because we haven't seen anything like this before, this new revelation helps the Israelites grow in their theology of knowing, obeying, and worshiping God. So again, the 20 verses that we work through today, they're not necessarily just Old Testament sort of ceremonial laws. What God is doing here, he's making himself known to his people so they're understanding of who he is will grow so they can worship him to a greater degree. And then lastly, this text previews Christ as the Passover lamb, the greatest act of redemption from sins. So again, when we think of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, and as it relates to Passover, We've got a great full picture of Passover presented right here in the middle of the plague narrative. You know, it's, Christ isn't called the, you know, the Passover gnat or the Passover flies 
or any of the other plagues. It's called the Passover lamb. So that's why we sort of get an HD look in chapter 12 and 13 on what Passover is. And it's grounded in the actual chronology of the plagues to help us have it rooted in a real historical event. And this would have been critical for the nation of Israel, right? It would have been critical for them, especially if you think about their history with uh, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. They needed gold, if you will, to hold on to that God was still redeeming a people. They would go back to Passover and see a real historical event that would give them hope and confidence in the future. So let's look at a summary or theme of Exodus 12, 1 through 20. And this will sort of lay it out for us in, uh, I think, crystal clear terms. In Exodus 12, 1 through 20, God gives Moses and Aaron instructions to institute Passover and how to regularly commemorate such an event. Now, why is this important? Well, as I've already established, the knowing God motif continues. Now God's concern is to make himself known to a greater degree to his people. And then secondly... For us as Christians, what the nation of Israel saw in part, we see in full. That Passover was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we really need to anchor ourselves to this morning. As we sort of look to the ceremonial aspect of Passover, we have to understand that the nation of Israel, they saw it in part. They saw it in part. They were just getting glimpses and bits and pieces of what was to come 1,400 years later in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, now 2,000 years on the other side of the cross, we can look back at Exodus, we can look back at the cross, and we're able to see how the two gel and mesh and form together beautifully. So these verses can be broken up into two parts. Let's begin by first off looking at God's institution of Passover. God's institution of Passover. So you look at verse 1 with me. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. So in the verses that follow, God tells Moses and Aaron the exact details for instituting the Passover. So so how does he do this? Well, he gives them several commands. So let's walk through these commands uh, together. So as God institutes Passover, first off, he tells them to install a new calendar. And in God's providence, we just kicked off a new year. That's exactly what God is doing here with the nation of Israel. He's going to have them install a new calendar. Look at verse 2. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Now with the Israelites' redemption from Egypt in view, here God insists that a new calendar be installed as well as a new start date. Why? Well, so that the Exodus and Passover would be celebrated at the beginning of every single new year. The nation of Israel, by the command of God here, was now to begin their calendar year recalling redemption, uh, the mighty work that God had accomplished to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. The word for this month, it literally means this new moon. Or it could also mean the day in which a crescent appears. Uh, So you can see the idea here of what God is establishing. The Israelites were to adopt a lunar calendar beginning in our March-April. So when we think about this month being established here, if we sort of put this in our context, this new calendar, this new lunar calendar year for the nation of Israel would be beginning in March-April in our time frame. In Hebrew, this is called Abib, which later had a name change to Nisan. We understand that from Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. They actually borrowed that name change um, after the Babylonian captivity. So this new lunar calendar will begin in Abib or Nisan 
which is our March or April. And this is all based on the crescent of the moon appearing and disappearing. Now, I'll be honest, when it's dark and I'm outside with my boys, when we're looking up at the moon, I'm not necessarily thinking about a calendar. We're just trying to spot the moon because they love seeing it and they love the crescent moon. But here God says that this new lunar calendar will be determined and will be started and from here going forward, you will know that the basis for this new calendar is Exodus, Passover, redemption, and those realities. But the primary point, and I think the larger point here besides just the calendar, I don't want that to be your only takeaway from this section, the primary point here is that God determines history. That it is God who determines time. He determines when and what comes to pass. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when there's a time for everything. Uh, This is exactly what we see here. It is God who is in charge of history and he has told his people that he will determine when Jewish history starts with this new lunar calendar month. In fact, one theologian has said this, the people of Israel are told to date all future events from this night of deliverance, which means this historical occurrence makes all the others in Israel possible. Everything about this yearly observance then anchors future Israelites to real past history and therefore gives them hope that Yahweh will act on their behalf in their own real histories. So not only are they supposed to install a new calendar, God continues, they're supposed to select a proper lamb And here, as they select a proper lamb in verses 3 through 5, they're told to select a lamb at a certain time. They're told to select a lamb at a certain time. So not only is God establishing the calendar, now he's establishing exactly how this sacrificial lamb process will unfold. You have to select a lamb at a certain time. Look at verse 3. So God tells Moses Moses and Aaron to speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb. So Moses and Aaron were to speak to all the congregation of Israel. That, by the way, is the first time we see that expression in the book of Exodus. Again, the, the, the rarity of this expression at this point is trying to draw us in how this won't just be an individual household event, although it is that, but it will ultimately be what? The entire nation, the entire congregation of Israel coming together to select a certain lamb at a certain time. Notice, and you can underline that, they will select this lamb on the 10th of this month. Well, not only is there a certain time they have to do this, there's also a certain people that will be involved, a certain people. You can look at verse 3 again. On the 10th of this month, they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house or to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So every household was commanded to select one lamb to be sacrificed, and that same lamb would be cooked and then eaten. If you had a large family, this meant that small amounts of the cooked meat would be distributed to everyone In such a way, and this was key, the animal that would be cooked and then would have been cut up and then spread and shared to everyone in the family, it would have been distributed in such a way that all of the animal was eaten. That was critical. Now, if the household was too small in number and was unable to eat all of the meat as a result of the sacrifice, they were to join another household. 
So, so you can sort of picture in your mind what would have been going on here. If you had a small household and a decent-sized sacrificial lamb, we'll see, talk about that here in just a little bit, if you could not eat all of it between the two of you or the three of you, you were supposed to pair up with another household to ensure that a combination of households would be able to eat and digest all of the food. Well, what was the big deal about having leftover meat? Uh, why, why was that to be avoided? Why, why no leftovers? <laughs> well, according to verse 10, any sort of leftover was to be burned. So that was sort of the fail-safe. If you couldn't get enough households together to be able to eat all of the lamb, verse 10, burn the leftovers. But why? Why was it so critical that nothing was left? Well, all of the food being eaten or burned, it demonstrated a whole and complete sacrifice. In other words, it showed that the entire lamb, not just some of the lamb, not just three quarters of the lamb, but all of the lamb was part of the sacrifice and acted as a complete and whole and total substitute. Again, this was never to be partial, but total and full. Now you can see where this is going. We can see where this is going, right? (laughs) I mean, this is why what Israel saw in part, we are able to see in full because we have the rest of Revelation. Ultimately, This is a picture of the entire person and work of Jesus Christ being taken and nailed to the cross. I mean, we would all agree in here that Jesus didn't give a partial sacrifice. It was a complete, total, whole, perfect sacrifice. That's the idea here. The households were to consume and deal with the totality of the animal. And as an aside here, and I think this is critical... You can see the importance of the family. All of them were to participate. It wasn't dump your children to the side and not let them partake in things of God. The entire family would have been included. It was the entire household. And then subsequently, if every single household that you had in the nation of Israel was enacting Passover at the same time, then corporately everybody would be involved and seeing that the totality of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb would have been done. And that would have been representative of the entire nation of Israel obeying God by faith to perform what he required. I mean, this is a massive scale. Again, all of this is just interjected here, (laughs) right towards the tail end of the plagues. This gave real substance to the fact that Passover was critical here. So not only were certain people involved, there also had to be a certain standard or a certain quality of lamb that was chosen. And you know this. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So the lamb had to be without spot or blemish. The lamb had to be a male and the lamb had to at least be one year old. Again, we know our Bibles here. We are grateful for a church like Countryside that for two decades and beyond has been teaching the word of God. But we're familiar with this idea of an animal being unblemished or without spot or without blemish. Uh, This means it just, it could not be crippled. It could not be spotted. It could not be diseased. Now, by the way, if you want to jot down in your notes for some further reading during the cold weather this week, you can go to Malachi chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 2. About 500 years before the time of Christ, the Levitical priesthood had become so corrupt that they were stealing animals and then sacrificing those animals. They were bringing blind lambs, crippled lambs, defective lambs to be sacrificed. Basically, they said, well, we don't care about God's standard. We're going to do what's best for us. And that's how they were sacrificing four or 500 years before Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, that's not in Exodus 12, is it? (laughs) Bring a spotless lamb without blemish, without spot. Now, again, to make another connection to the New Testament here, 
this is said of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, that Christ didn't redeem anybody, or animals rather, didn't redeem anybody, but it was through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that he was a lamb unblemished and spotless. So the New Testament picks up on this idea. Again, Hebrews 10 would be a, a great chapter to find this as well. So they had to select a lamb at a certain time, Nisan 10. It had to be certain people and also had to have a certain quality. So let's next look at a, the fact that they had to perform a detailed sacrifice. They had to perform a detailed sacrifice. So the lamb was selected and now they're moving into the sacrificial side of things. Well, first off, the sacrifice had to be done at a designated time. It had to be done at a designated time. Make sure you follow with me here because this is critical as we see some New Testament connections to Christ. That Passover, the sacrificial lamb, had to be sacrificed at a designated time. Again, God establishes the calendar. He establishes the type of lamb to be chosen. And then he establishes when it is to all take place. Look at verse 6. You shall keep the lamb. Remember it was selected on the 10th. You shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly, all of the people of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So the lamb was identified and picked on the 10th day. And then that lamb was kept close to the family for four days. Uh, most likely it was kept close so it could frequently be examined over that four-day period to ensure it met God's standards of quality and to keep it healthy. Now, that's critical. And, and I, I would also say, as that lamb would be chosen and picked out, that that lamb would be selected from the group and it would be kept near the family and they would tend to it well. It really became as if it was part of their family in, in an intimate sort of way. So notice the entire congregation was to do this. And then in unison, all of Israel was to kill the lamb at twilight at the end of verse 6. I mean, that's an amazing scene to think about. Again, as the Israelites leave Egypt and they make their way into the wilderness, conservative estimates tell us that there were about two million people that would have partaken in this Passover, represented by thousands of families, all of them selecting the lamb on the 10th, taking the lamb on the 14th at twilight, sacrificing that lamb. The word twilight means between evenings. Uh, when the sun is setting. It's when the sun is setting because that provides just enough light to sacrifice the animal and then to move into dinner. In an ancient Near Eastern context, uh, this would have begun around 3 p.m. This would have begun around 3 p.m. Some 14 years after this first Passover, Jesus Christ gave up his life on the cross on Nisan 14 at 3 p.m. according to the Gospels. I mean, this is an amazing connection that we see here between Passover and Exodus 12 and its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. I mean, think about how our God could orchestrate something so detailed and so pointed and so strategic to bring it to pass. That at this moment in time, God was enacting Passover, starting a new calendar. The lamb would be selected. The lamb would be slain. 1,500 years later, in AD 30, Christ enters into Jerusalem on Nisan 10, that Sunday or Monday, the triumphal entry as we know it. And then on Friday, as the Passover lamb, he was slain on the cross at 3 p.m., fulfilling Passover. That's why 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. The Jews only saw this in part. They understood the need for sacrifice. They understood the Genesis 3.15 seed was coming. They understood to be right with God, there had to be shedding of blood. 
We, on the other hand, have all of the New Testament revelation that tells us not one Passover lamb ever in the history of Passover took away sins. But it did picture the one who ultimately could. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. In less than 24 hours, imagine this. Think about this. In less than 24 hours, Jesus on that Thursday night, on that Thursday night was in the upper room with his disciples. He was breaking bread, instituting communion, the Lord's table, which also is associated with Passover. He identifies his betrayer, Judas. Judas leaves. He institutes the Lord's table. And then he goes out into garden to pray that night. He's arrested. He faces six trials. He hangs on the cross for exactly six hours. And then at 3 p.m. he dies. And then he's put in that tomb by 6 p.m. He's in the grave Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then is resurrected, demonstrating that he forgives sins. Only an almighty God who decrees such things and can providentially bring it about can bring about redemption. (laughs) That's exactly what we see here. So not only did the sacrifice have to be enacted at a designated time, it had to be distributed to a particular place. Look at verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So after the lamb was sacrificed and before anything was cooked or eaten, its blood was to be put on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. I mean, even more concisely said, it was to put on the doorframe. The priority of the blood over the food demonstrates that it was the shedding of the blood that was the ultimate visual sense of Passover. Of course, it was about the meal. Of course, it was about the fellowship. Of course, it was about the worship. But it was the shedding of blood that took priority. And these sacrificial lambs, every generation, generation after generation, pointed towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only did they have to perform a detailed sacrifice, so we see fourthly here that they had to eat a specific meal. So the sacrifice was performed and now they had to eat a meal. First, they prepared the ingredients, sort of a divine cookbook here. They prepared the ingredients. They had to do this a certain way. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. So on the same night, the sacrificial lamb would have then been cooked and roasted. The primary reason it was cooked and roasted was to ensure that no blood would be eaten and that the meat would be properly prepared for this meal because it was a sacred meal. They were to eat unleavened bread, and we'll come back to this later. But we'll see in our study of Leviticus next time. I'm serious. (laughs) That unleavened bread is often associated with sacrificial meals and offerings. So you you will see this more frequently in the book of Leviticus as as you come there in your readings. And they were also to eat with bitter herbs. And I love this little detail here. Because the bitter herbs symbolized the bitter 400 plus years of experience in slavery in Egypt. That was the whole point, imagine that. It was to be bitter, it was part of the meal. It's been said that these foods were to remind them of the plainness and bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. And then verse nine, the animal had to be roasted, not boiled. It was a quick and easy way to prepare the meal Of course, it deals with the blood issue, but listen to this. It was a quick and easy way to prepare the meal, but it also promoted a sense of urgency that redemption was coming, that redemption was coming. So they had to make all the right ingredients, prepare the right ingredients. They also had to dispose of the leftovers, verse 10. 
They had to dispose of the leftovers. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. I told you this is the fail safe. Get enough households together to make sure it's all eaten. But if there's anything left over, do not leave it. Do not leave it. You burn it. You burn it. So the entire evening was to be centered on the Passover, the sacrificing of the lamb, the spreading of the blood, the cooking of the meat, the family meal, and then disposing of what remained. And then one of my favorite parts here, they also had to dress the part. I think we should do this next week. They were supposed to dress the part. Look at verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So for this meal, everyone had to come dressed and ready. Proper clothes, proper sandals. And a staff had to be present. For the generation that was in Egypt, they were on the brink of redemption. For the generations after being freed from Egypt, the clothes would help them remember the greatest act of redemption. Alan Ross said, each participant had to think that he or she was actually in the original congregation escaping from bondage. I love that. So this first generation that would experience Passover, they would have literally experienced redemption from Egypt, all two million of them. And then the subsequent years and the subsequent generations, they were to dress up and participate in the meal and in the sacrifice as if they were that original generation back in slavery in Egypt. You see how... You see how and why Moses wants this material right here before the plague itself actually happens. He wants all of the nation to feel the weight of what this means in God's redemptive history. So that's the specific meal. Let's next look at how they are to anticipate the coming destroyer. Verses 12 and 13. This is God speaking. Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you can see there in verse 13, you can take your eyes back there, the Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach, occurring here in verse 13 and in verse 23 and in verse 27. Uh, This word means to have compassion, to protect, to skip over, to hedge, uh, to straddle. And this is interesting. Some Jewish commentaries argue that God's passing over isn't merely him skipping over homes. Like I think a, a lot of times we have in our head that God is just skipping over a house. He sees blood, he just skips over the house. But Jewish commentaries understand this to mean that God is standing between the destroyer and the door as a mighty defender. That God is standing there as a protector. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what's going on, who is the destroyer, all of those realities. Most likely the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. We don't know for sure, and that's another discussion to be had. But when we think about Passover, I don't want us to think of God or Christ merely just passing over the homes. Instead, he's there as a valiant protector, protecting his people who are obeying him by faith in the sacrifice that they had just performed. So on that night, Nisan 14, God will strike down all the firstborn in Egypt, man and beast. And by doing so, not only will God crush the Egyptians, 
But he will solidify in stone that Yahweh, God himself, is the only true God and the Egyptian gods are absolutely nothing. That's not any shock to us because that's what we've seen in our study. God is Yahweh. He is the God of all gods. So that's God's institution of Passover, and a lot more we'll say about that in coming weeks. But let's look secondly at God's commemoration of Passover. So Passover has been instituted. The first Passover, the 10th plague, has not happened yet. So God institutes Passover, but now he's going to lay out sort of the stipulations for his commemoration of Passover. So he does this by giving several instructions. Let's look at these. First off, he tells the people that they are to remember the Passover. They are to remember the Passover. Verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So the day and event of Passover was never to be forgotten. And again, you, you, can, you can see how important Passover was based on what they had to do to gird themselves up for the event. It was now to be a memorial, a remembrance, a recall for generations and generations after this first initial Passover. At the beginning of each year, God's people were to remember and reflect upon this great event. Look, I mean, to some degree, we understand this. When the new year starts, we often have New Year's resolutions. We do this, and that's fine and dandy, and that's great. But in Jewish minds and in Jewish thinking, they weren't making New Year's resolutions. They would immediately go back to Passover and immediately go back to the day that they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And this was crucial. They had to remember Passover. And not only did they remember Passover, they were instructed to prepare for the feast. They were instructed to prepare for the feast. And the feast I'm referencing here uh, will be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover was a one-day Nisan 14 event. But now, as they're being instructed to prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the celebration, the commemoration would continue for another week. Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So for seven days, leavened bread could not be eaten and all leaven had to be removed from each and every household. Now, what's the deal with leavened bread? I told you we were going to come back around to this. Now, leavened bread were small round wafers that were break from grain that didn't have rising agents or leaven. Leaven was a yeast or some other types of rising agents that were common in the ancient world and even today. But such agents, and listen to me on this, such agents, foreign agents, if you will, were inserted into the mixture and the dough. Those foreign agents, those things were removed from all homes for seven days. Now, why? It seems so interesting that that would be one of God's requirements. Well, let me give you two reasons here. The first reason is that leavened bread couldn't be made quickly. Leavened bread couldn't be made quickly. So unleavened bread symbolized urgency and it symbolized quickness and readiness and hurriedness. Unleavened bread could be put together and baked fairly quickly. That was the idea of redemption. Redemption is here. We are free. Let's go towards the promised land. So all leaven had to be removed. Secondly, yeast or any other type of rising agent was seen as an intrusion. 
as a corruption, as an insertion. So here's what God wanted. God didn't want any of the corrupt pagan worldview of the Egyptians to continue with them as they journeyed to the promised land. And and they needed this, by the way. Uh, For over 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt, but that meant that they were embedded in an Egyptian culture that believed in the pantheon of gods, idols. And they needed to remember this lesson about leaven because in Exodus 32, what do Aaron and company do while Moses is up on Sinai? (laughs) They start acting like Egyptians, (laughs) foolish. So leaven was to tell them, don't let anything intrude on your worldview that you are Yahweh's. And I think, and I don't want to stretch this, but maybe I'll let you do a little research on your own this week. I think the seven-day time period or the seven-day time frame of this Feast of Unleavened Bread, what I think that pictures is seven days of creation. I think ultimately what we see pulled here together is that the people of Israel, once they are redeemed, they are stepping into a new creation. This is a new world. This is a new life for them. I think that's symbolized here in this feast. So they were to prepare for the feast for seven days. And then they were to gather for worship, verse 16. They were instructed to gather for worship. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly. And another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. So again, referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first and the last days were to be set apart for God's people to gather and reflect upon Passover. So Passover has happened. Day one and day seven, a Feast of Unleavened Bread. God's people were to get together, not work. They could do normal duties that they needed to do to stay alive. But they were to get together and they were to reflect back on Passover. They also had to observe the feast in specific ways. This is verses 17 through 20. You follow along as I read our final verses today. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread. Until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. This is amazing. As the Feast of Unleavened Bread and God's instructions for it come to an end, we're told here that unleavened bread is absolutely critical. They are to observe and participate in the Feast Unleavened Bread in light of being freed from Egypt. And they were to observe such a day perpetually. You can see that in verses 14 and 17. They were to observe this feast perpetually. Verses 18, or verse 18 rather, tells us that they were to do this on the 14th to the 21st day. And according to verse 19, if you were an Israelite, you were commanded to observe this feast no matter where you were. So you could be roaming the earth with your family, and God says, even if you're not around centralized Israelite worship, you observe this feast. And if you were a Gentile proselyte, meaning you weren't a Hebrew but came to saving faith in the Old Testament God, guess what? You were to observe the feast as well. 
And just to put an exclamation point on the seriousness of Passover, notice what it tells us here in verse 19. If you don't participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which thinks back to Passover, you will be cut off from the land, from the people, disappear, exterminated, eliminated. That's the serious nature of Passover. For some more homework this week, go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right around the time of Jesus' last week, the last few days before his crucifixion, you will notice that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all make mention of the fact that it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that it was Passover. And these Old Testament events that we see in Exodus 12 and 13 ultimately came to fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we weren't there in Exodus 12. We weren't there in Exodus 13. But what does it mean for us today? Let me end with a quote from Alan Ross, and then we'll pray. For Christians... Passover foreshadowed redemption in Christ and the feast and unleavened bread looked to the life of holiness that should follow not just for a week or for a month but forever. The point is that a life purged of corruption is evidence of deliverance begun. It was true in the old covenant. How much more is it true in the new? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for texts like Exodus 12 that tell us how you personally instituted Passover, ultimately picturing the final Passover, our Passover lamb, our sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful that we can see what it was like for those first generation Israelites to be on the brink of redemption and then subsequent generations to celebrate what you have done. And for us here today, when we think about Passover, may we glory in the cross that Jesus Christ is our sacrificial lamb and it is by his blood that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We're grateful for our local church here at Countryside and all the brothers and sisters here. Uh, to worship you on the Lord's day. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.